Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie M. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And you look athletic AF. You are sporty spice right now. I am wearing actual tennis shoes. Yeah. And like, you know, gym attire. Do you call them you call them tennis shoes, not sneakers? I do call them tennis shoes. That's like a regional thing, I think. Is it? What do you call them? Sneakers? No. Well, it depends. Well, you're not really from the South. Technically. You were raised here, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I call them tennis shoes. Um, Yeah, so it is bring a friend to the gym week, and one of my friends has invited me to the gym, so I've now gone two days in a row. Wow. Um, Wow. You may or may not remember, several years ago for Christmas, I got a 23andMe like DNA thing. Yeah. And I did it. I was, it was during those like weird couple of weeks where I was staying with you a lot. Uh huh. And I got my results and I shouted at you that I was like Irish and I'm, I'm, I'm white. White. Yeah. I'm very white. white. AF. <laughs> um, Wait, was this in my old apartment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was very exciting. And I went back, like, I only have the results in one place, like they're on my tablet. I've never, like, I don't remember the password I used. So if, you know, I ever lose the password, it's on an email address that I no longer have. So I'm kind of screwed. Yeah. But I went back and looked at it the other day. And I realized that, you know, they have, like, not just where your ancestors are from, but I also did the health component. Oh, yeah. Oh, I do. I'm having a flashback. Yep. So I was really worried. There are, like, six or seven, like, primary health indicators, like Alzheimer's, breast cancer, you opted um, out of Alzheimer's, though. I opted out of Alzheimer's because it's one of my biggest fears. Yeah. I later went back and changed my results, and it came back negative, or as though the variant was not identified. So that's okay. a good thing. Okay. Um, but as I was looking through it this time, I saw that it said muscle composition <gasps> as one of, like, the things. And, like, it predicts what your muscle composition is like. And mine said elite athlete next to it. What? So I have not been living up to my truest potential and have decided that in my ripe old age of 30, I am going to become an an elite athlete and start to live up to my potential. I am so excited. Thank you you so much. You are going to, like, I see it. Yeah. I see it in your future. Yeah. I thought you were about to say you see it in, like, my facial structure or something. (laughs) No. No, I, no. Like poking my head up over the. Over the uh, bed. Over the bed. Can you see <laughs> my elite situation? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. So, I, and so we've we've talked about like kind of half heartedly doing a triathlon. Yeah, uh, very half heartedly. However, yeah. if I keep going at this rate, I might be ready at some point. Oh my god, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. Um, I've always said that I did not understand the joy of picking heavy things up just to put them, them back down, down mm-hmm. um, so that you can later pick up heavier things. Yeah. I kind of get it. Oh, my God. You're like, converted. I mean, it's only two days. Like, let's not get too crazy here. <laughs> Day two. But uh, I woke up this morning. I was like, oh, this kind of feels nice. Like, yeah. A little sore. feel like I've done something. Getting those happy chemicals yeah. popping off. Yeah. I definitely walked out of there both days not in a horrible mood. Well, so, that's good. Yeah. That's, I think, the goal, actually. Uh-huh. 
um, which has been a very different experience than any other time I've gone to the gym. I think I always did like too much mm-hmm. and made myself miserable. Yeah. And so like I had this horrible association with going to the gym because mm-hmm. I'm not one of these like work out until it hurts people. I just want to go and like feel strong. Yeah. I don't want to go and then feel strong to the point of feeling miserable. Well, I think it's good going with the intention of like it not being a physical transformation, like a mental transformation yeah. and like yeah. how you're feeling versus how you look. I think mm-hmm. that's that's amazing. I love that for you. Thank you so much. Building those chemicals and and living up to your destiny. Right? I mean, if 23 and me predicted it, it must be true. It has to be true. Um, it also said that I was, it also said I was more likely to be left-handed, really? which in fact is not true. You so, are not left-handed. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's one for two, but still. Ray is left-handed. Is he? Yeah. Well, he should do a 23andMe and see if his is accurate. He did do a 23andMe because you gave it to him. He did Ancestry. Oh. Uh, yeah. Because I also did Ancestry. Was there I wanted any differences? to compare. Yes. Really? So the way that... DNA testing works. And I did not do the health component for Ancestry. I only did the DNA component because I was really into genealogy at one point. Mm-hmm. I still sort of am, as we talked about on a recent episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, a follower who's also got her own genealogy we business. Do. Not forgotten genealogy. Thank you Look so it much. up, people. Yeah. Um, so, like, I was super into this. So I wanted to compare. Mm-hmm. And 23andMe's health component was what I was most interested in there. But the way that the DNA testing works is they compare it to other samples. Mm-hmm. So it varies a little bit depending on who like, submitted who a sample. submitted samples. Yeah. So they're not like exact. It's not like they went to Ireland and took uh, DNA from a 100% Irish person and then like compared. Right. right. Um, Conan O'Brien. Right. So. Or a leprechaun. Which. I mean, same thing. the limit does not exist. Yeah. They are the same. So what was the very, like, how did they vary? How different were the whiteness? Um, I think one on, um, I think Ancestry, I was like 66% Irish or Scott-Irish. Um, and on 23andMe, it was like, my highest one was... English and Welsh. So, like, uh-huh. all the same general I mean, area. Yeah. Um, like, or maybe France was really high. Like, those were my big high countries. Right. Um, I just don't remember the exact percentages. I know that Ancestry was 66% Scott-Irish. Scott-Irish. Scott-Irish? Yeah. Wow. Yep. 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 My I was sis- definitely there in a former life. So, that checks out. Oh, for sure. My sister did one, so is there any need for me to do one if she did one? Um, when we have the same parents. So there's a benefit if um, I don't want to get caught for murder. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, but if if your sister oh, right. has already done one, you're absolutely you're going to get caught regardless. Damn. Um, so I mean, it could still be interesting because you do get like a little bit of a different gene than your sister because you're not identical twins. Right. What's really interesting is that people assigned male at birth who have an X and a Y chromosome um, have more genetic information because your two X chromosomes, yeah. I think, are identical. So having an X and a Y gives you a little more info. Right. So, like, my brother, if he were to do it, would actually have a more thorough result than I do. Mm-hmm. 
So wow. Yep. It also Ancestry did confirm for me that I was not adopted. That's great. I'm yeah. so glad for you. I um, wouldn't have known based on your taste in wine and airplanes, but yeah. Or Celtic woman. Yeah. Or Celtic <laughs> woman. <laughs> exactly. But for the first 15 years of my life or so, I was pretty convinced I was adopted. So it was nah. good to finally have that nah. confirmation. Ray's came back and said he was from Nigeria. Oh, uh-huh. And so we've talked about, he's like, I want to go to Nigeria. And I was like, let's go. Let's fucking go. Tell me what time, when do we leave? <laughs> um, I would just like to remind you and Ray that I bought the Ancestry test. So, so you should buy me come. a ticket in you return. Did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that checks out, I think. That seems fair. That yeah. seems absolutely fair. No, we have so much traveling to do once all this non- nonsense is over. Same. Same, um, though. Yeah, I cannot wait to get out of the country next year for Thanksgiving again. It's really the best time to travel. That's a good point. I love, I yeah, you get two days off. Why not? Well, and no one else is traveling internationally because everyone wants to be here for Thanksgiving. So the planes are empty. You can go anywhere. Christmas markets are being set up in Europe. Like, yeah. it's so nice. Interesting. Highly recommend. We want to go. So we're not... We're doing a different honeymoon than we had planned because we had originally planned to get married in April. So we wanted right. to go to Greece, right? which we didn't want to do in the winter now that we had to push the wedding back. So Greece is like a big point on our list. Oh, absolutely. But we want to go when it's uh, warmer because, you know, they kind of shut stuff down yeah. in the winter. Yeah. Um, oh, I have so many thoughts. So many places I want to go. I also, know. yeah, Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii sounds nice. Back to Kauai. See mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I would really love to see Budapest. Mm-hmm. Like Eastern Europe is very interesting to me right now. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Budapest, I think would be fun and really cool. Yeah. I loved Prague. And yeah. I feel like the further into Eastern Europe... Oh, for sure. Like, just an interesting culture. Yeah. Different vibe. It's a blend. Yeah. Two worlds collide. Yep. I love it. Just like in The Little Mermaid. I don't know. I feel like two worlds collided there. <laughs> I was trying to think of what Disney movie has a song about worlds. It's uh, Tarzan. When we collide, we lose our... No, that's a Snow Patrol song. <laughs> <laughs> that's my angsty 16-year-old self. Um... Two worlds, one family. It's Tarzan. Two, no. It's not Tarzan? Make, I was going to make a two girls, one cup. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Don't do it. We aren't going back. No. Well, I just not. recovered from that. <laughs> I never saw it. Oh, you should definitely Google <laughs> no. it then. I think I'm good. I think I'm too old now. I think I've passed I mean that threshold. Okay, you know what that's I'm saying? fair. That's fair. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Oh. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Hmm. Speaking of two girls. Oh no. I have a topic for you. Okay. It's a smooth transition. Oh, are you transitioning? That was my transition. <gasps> I love it. Thank, thank you, you so much. You're so <laughs> welcome. Are you gonna thank me? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for complimenting me. I felt really proud of that transition, and it will become very clear why. Okay. I'm scared. Okay. So we're going to do a little bit more of a sociology dive this week, because Ah. we've been doing lots of psychology. Oh, yeah. Let's mix it up. 
Um, so what do the following movies have in common? You ready? Mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, Slumdog Millionaire, Avatar, and The Avengers. Oh, God. Um, none of them happened here in America during present times. Yes. Yes. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. <laughs> it's also not the answer I was looking okay, for. Okay, what you got? They all fail the Bechdel test. Oh, I see. I don't know what that is, but I bet you're going <laughs> to tell you all about it. So, 36 years ago, in a cartoon strip called Dykes to Watch Out For, oh, cartoonist Allison Bechdel <gasps> promoted the idea that, quote, women on screen ought to express their real feelings in all aspects of their lives. Ultimately, women on TV and in movies should be, quote, characters and not cliches. So she created the Bechdel test. Okay. There are three simple rules, and these rules are most frequently applied to movies, but can be applied to all sources of media. (gasps) Rule number one, the movie or piece of media has to have at least two named women in it. Oh, well, that seems like the bare minimum. Bare minimum. Number two. They have to talk to each other. Oh, okay. And number three, they have to talk about something other than a man. Oh, wow. That seems like just normal shit. It should be, but it's not. (gasps) None of the movies that I just mentioned passed the Bechdel test. Okay, so I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings. We were just talking about Lord of the Rings because Ray was watching some type of, like, he loves sci-fi. Some type, like, sci-fi shit now, like... Uh Uh-huh. It, it's so much more uh, well-rounded. There's people of color. There's right? a lot yeah. more diversity. And I was like, we were talking about how Lord of the Rings would have been so much better mm-hmm. with a lot more diversity in it. We oh, literally sure. had the conversation when you knocked on the door. Five sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you just had that conversation. I feel like we should bring him in here as our special guest. We should. He's for probably asleep. Probably. Um, so Lord of the Rings does not pass. Why? Because there aren't women who communicate with each other in it. No. Okay. To be fair, there's only are, like three women. There are two that I can think of, and they are separated by distance. That's fair, but not justified necessarily. Correct. Slumdog Millionaire, same thing. Avatar. There's only one woman I can think of. Yep. Um, actually, there are oh, two. Oh, there's two. Sigourney. Yep. Um, but the only thing they or the avatar or the uh blue person whose name i forget <laughs> does not talk to sigourney ever i don't See, think it's so. been a minute since i've seen it but i know me too the one that i found most interesting on this list was the avengers because i know there are at least three that in the 2013 avengers movie there were i think at least three women um scarlet pepper potts black widow and agent hill Okay. Right? Uh, but they never speak to each other. Huh. So it's really fascinating to like think about all of these movies. Um, like even uh, think Legally Blonde and how far into the movie we get before she talks about something other than a man mm-hmm. um, with another woman. Yeah. Yeah. So... You're right. This is literally nothing. It is the bare minimum level of depth. So let's talk about some of the female stereotypes that can be really pervasive. 
um, if not measured and kept in check. So we've got the perfect wife, mm. dam- the damsel in distress, mm-hmm. the trophy, the clingy girlfriend, the bitchy person, mm-hmm. the psychotic ex, Oh yeah, the mean girl, the manic pixie dream girl, the shrew, the slut, all of these stereotypes are about women based in their relationship to a man. Mm-hmm. And these are the most pervasive stereotypes in movies. So this is also, there has also been some inherent gender bias in the movie business, obviously. Disproportionately, there's a low number of films with female leads. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to pigeonhole actresses into like these predefined roles and yeah. like character cast. Um, there's a lack of character development compared to male counterparts. Um, and using the Bechtel test, one website and or one um, article analyzed about 1,600 movies from 1990 to 2013 to examine the relationship between the prominence of women in the film and the film's budget and gross profits. And they found that the median budget of movies that passed the test was substantially lower than the median budget of movies in the entire sample. So the budget for movies where there is strong female content or even like the very simple passing of these three literally nothing rules. Yeah. Um, like people were not funding these films. However, what is interesting is that the data doesn't support the belief in Hollywood that these films featuring women do worse at the box office. Quote, instead, we found evidence that films that feature meaningful interactions between women may, in fact, have a better return on investment overall than films that don't. Another study, uh, another study looked at a sample of movies from 1970 to 2013 and found that only about half had at least one scene in which a woman talked to another woman about something other than a man. So it's 50 percent of movies. From wow. 1970 to 2013. So, yeah, because what I'm thinking is that primarily the storyline is revolving a hetero romance. Yeah. 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 Or even action films like um, yeah. Think Fast and the Furious, I uh, Transformers, be. like oh. all of Yikes. the. I feel like so much of the film industry is geared towards men Mm -hmm. um so it's really interesting because women go and see movies i would assume just as frequently as men yeah yeah that's a great point this is so interesting isn't it cool thank you so much for covering this this is really fucking important to be talking about you're so welcome and it's about to get better for you is it better or is it worse i think better Better. i'm actually gonna like leave us on an upper this time oh yeah I figured I'd mix it up a little bit. (laughs) Um, So what's nice is that this seems to be improving. Pre-1990, 25 to 40% of movies did not pass the Bechdel test. So we're now in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's been 30 or 2021. (laughs) It's been 31 years and we're now at the 50% mark. So we've jumped a whole, you know. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Um, According to a 2014 study by the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, 
In 120 films made worldwide from 2010 to 2013, only 31% of named characters were female. 31% of named characters? Were female. And 23% of the films had a female protagonist or co-protagonist. Only 23%. Only 7% of directors were women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another study looking at the 700 top grossing films from 2007 to 2014 found that only 30% of the speaking characters were female. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is like very percentage heavy. No, I, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think having been... Okay, so when I was in college... Mm-hmm. I was involved in a group of like a student led organization that was content creators. Like, yeah, we made movies and I was not I was on I was not on the production side. I was on the acting side and like the hair and makeup side. And literally within that and I'm not going to name it, but within that particular organization, it was almost it was formulaic, like the shit that they were pumping out. Um, and it was, it, I felt it was only because they could only see a certain distance. Oh, there absolutely. was no diversity. There was nothing they could see other than we called it boys with guns. Yeah. Cause that's what they were interested in making. Yeah. Was these big, impressive, um, you Productions. know, action yeah. focused films where there was no room for us. Yeah. 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 No, and like when we start thinking about gender, which we're about to get into, and other forms of diversity, it gets even worse. Cool. But it does get better in some (laughs) ways. In 2016, an analysis of screenplays of about 2,000 commercially successful films found that 82% of the films, men had two of the top three speaking roles while women had the dialogue in only 22% of films. Wow. So only 22% of the time they were speaking? Or had the most dialogue. Had the most dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wonder also what per, like what was that content about, too. Probably, right. you know. I mean, it just I said the, good best grossing, oh, or the best grossing. Oh, the best grossing. Commercially successful. I'm sorry. This was commercially successful films. Wow. Yeah. One thing this test doesn't take into account is how well the women are represented. Rather, it's about the active presence of women in film or media. So even within these three rules, like you could still have um, women being represented poorly. Sure. If they're having, like it can pass the Bechdel test and still be a shitty representation of women. Yeah. Um, also, this is incredibly gendered language. Like, the Bechdel test um, was first written into a comic strip in a feminist uh, magazine in 1985. Mm-hmm. I'm about to tell you a little bit more about Alison Bechdel and explain some of her background. But, like, I'm aware that we're using very gendered language. It's because when this was written, or when the Bechdel test was developed, it was written using gendered language. Right. So let's get back to Alison Bechtel. Beautiful name, by the way. It's a gorgeous name. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never met an Alison that I didn't love. <laughs> Bechtel was born September 10th, 1960, and is, an, and is an American cartoonist. 
She has two brothers. I'm not sure where she is in the mm. birth order lineup. Good question. Um, Bechtel is best known for her strip Dykes to Watch Out For. She has also done a graphic, two graphic novels, Fun Home and Are You My Mother? So Fun Home is the first novel I read by Alison Bechtel. And I read it in undergrad, and it's about her relationship with her father before he dies by suicide Mm. Um, and being raised in a funeral home that she calls a fun home. Wow. Was he a funeral director? Um, I think so. It's been a long time since I've read it. But it has since been turned into a Broadway play and won a Tony nomination and maybe an award. You know, I I know that being a funeral director is one of those really hard careers, and and it's like statistically one of those careers that people do take their own life. Um, I think he part of the reason he took his own life was for being gay in like the eighties. Oh. oh wow! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe earlier than that, maybe seventies, because she was born nineteen sixty. Okay, so I don't remember exactly when he died, but they had a tumultuous relationship mm-hmm. to say the least. Um, Allison said that she was inspired by Virginia Woolf. What lesbian wasn't? Um, also, as the name Dykes to Watch Out For suggests, Allison Bechtel identifies as a lesbian mm-hmm. um, and uses she, her pronouns. Allison said that she was in- inspired by Virginia Woolf, who in 1929 wrote an essay called A Room of One's Own. And I'm going to share a quote from that essay for you. She says, quote, All these relationships between women, I thought, rapidly recalling the splendid gallery of fictitious women, are too simple. And I tried to remember any case in the course of my reading where two women were represented as friends. They are now and then mothers and daughters, but almost without exception, they are shown in their relationship to men. It was strange to think that all the great women of fiction were, until Jane Austen's day, not only seen by the other sex, but seen only in relation to the other sex and how small a part of a woman's life that is. Right. Absolutely. To recognize that in 1929 and publish it yeah. is a profound statement. And her strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, the, stri- um, the rules seem to refer to the alienation of queer women and film and entertainment where the only possible way for a queer woman to imagine any of the characters in the film may also be queer was if they satisfied the requirements of the test. Wow. Yeah. So it was not just like we need better representation of women. Mm -hmm. It was also this idea of like, we're never going to have queer representation of women if we, if if we can only talk about men. Right. Right. In fact, Bechtel calls it quote, a little lesbian joke in an alternative feminist newspaper, which is like what she imagined the test to be when she first published it was like just kind of a joke. Right. Like prove me wrong. Find these things. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So that has some other implications though. Like um, several people described the test as quote, a commentary on how media representations enforce harmful gender norms by depicting women's relationships to men more than any other relationship and women's lives as only important insofar as they relate to men. Mm -hmm. Like, it's shitty. Yeah. It is shitty how women are portrayed in media. Yeah. 
There have since been corollaries developed for non-white characters, Mm -hmm. and specifically Latinx stereotypes, and there have also been suggestions that the rules to the Bechdel test be enhanced. One person recommends um, that a fourth rule should be that the conversation needs to last more than 60 seconds. Okay. And, like, if you were to add that as a fourth rule, I wonder how many movies that currently pass the Bechdel test would no longer pass the Bechdel test. Absolutely. Can you go over again? It was that there's... Two women. Two women. Who must be named. Must be named. They must speak to each other. They must have a conversation with each other that's about something other than men. That's about something other than men. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm going to tell you about a few other uh, tests that are similar to the Bechdel test, but gauge other areas. The Makamori test, formulated by Tumblr user Chalia, and named after the only significant female character in the 2013 film Pacific Rim, asks whether a female character has a narrative arc that is not about supporting a man's story. Mm. Comic book writer Kelly Sue DeConnick proposed a sexy lamp test. If you can replace your female character with a sexy lamp and the story still basically works, (laughs) you may need to write another draft. Oh, it's like the Christmas story (laughs) with any other story. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Wow. So like thinking about supporting female characters. Yeah. Like if I could replace you with a lamp and nothing else changes about the story. As in like there's no speaking. Right. You're just kind of a prop. Or you don't contribute anything meaningful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then you need to rewrite. The Sphinx test was developed by the Sphinx Theatre Company of London. Of London. And, like from London. And asks about the interaction of women with other characters, as well as how prominently female characters feature in action, um, and how proactive or reactive they are, and whether they are portrayed stereotypically. This was conceived to, quote, encourage theater makers to think about how to write more and better roles for women. In reaction to research indicating that 37% of theater roles were written for women as of 2014. 37% of theater roles for women were for women in 2014. Like, that's such a small number. 37. Wow. Yep. Well, okay. So let's think of, because we're a Broadway podcast, basically. I mean, we're practically a Hamilton podcast. So, I mean, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, okay, but so even Wicked, think about like um, Angelica and Eliza. Eliza, name a conversation that they have that's not about Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Does it pass the Bechdel test? No. Hard pass. Hard pass. That they have with each other. That they have with each other, not that they have with other people. Because I know that Angelica. So and- in the beginning, they are just in this city of new york and yeah but they're like walking around looking for boys yes they are at least eliza is yeah 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 that's yeah but you're right you're right um i mean wicked is uh you know female focused yeah but surrounding but it surrounds a love story yeah but they still have conversations about friendship and about saving animals and being popular being popular (laughs) like the boy's story is You're less right. important. Um, okay, so Annie. Annie is a child. And there Ooh. are 
there and and then that passes i think because they Annie have conver- and Daddy Warbucks's lady friend. Yes, they have, have conversations. conversations about her being an orphan. That's true. That- or do they just have conversations about their relationship to Daddy Warbucks? I would have to go back and watch again. I would have to think back to my eighth grade uh, role as Miss Hannigan. Yes. Oh, Annie and Miss Hannigan have a conversation that's not about a man. So that would pass. Okay, good job. But is also a negative portrayal of women as miss hannigan i had a great time (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about i'm thinking like even phantom of the opera christine Mm -hmm. i don't think has another conversation with another woman does she uh i I don't think so yeah wow i know you'll start to look at every movie differently from what about cats i haven't seen cat i haven't i've never seen cats i don't i can't talk about cats but i want to I want to talk about things. <laughs> <laughs> I want Cats to talk about things of nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll go back and we'll watch Cats together and then we'll give a full review. Are we going to watch the new Cats or Probably. the old Cats? Ooh, both and compare. Okay. I don't know. It depends how bad the, <laughs> the first one we watch is. Which could be both the new or the old. Correct. Right. Correct. It's one of those things. Mm-hmm. There's an SNL skit about all of the um, actors from all of the Broadway plays getting together, and it's perfect. Will you please Chicago? Chicago? Chicago passes. Chicago passes. Doesn't it? Because they also talk about the careers. Yeah. They talk about killing people. And all that jazz, you know. And all that jazz. Yeah. Razzle dazzle them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I can't think. Book of Mormon does not pass. Book of Mormon would not pass, no. Nope um into the woods passes yep yep because cinderella and yep they have a conversation yep um fiddler on the roof i'm gonna say doesn't pass i don't i it's been a minute since i've seen it what about greece greece does not greece there's not a chance in hell greece passes (laughs) i don't think beauty school dropout counts ah I don't know. Got to keep going to the malt shop in the sky. I'm still going to say it doesn't count. Yeah. I'm going to I mean, gonna it's all about pass. dating and like having sex or not having sex. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, no. Okay. Very fascinating. Shall I continue? Absolutely. Okay, great. The Johnson analysis was developed by film critic Marianne Johnson and provides a method to evaluate the representation of women and girls in movies. Although developed for the screen, it can also be applied to other books and media and consists of adding or subtracting points based on different categories and representations. The analysis evaluates media on the criteria that includes basic representation of women, female agency, power and authority, the male gaze, issues in gender and sexuality. Finally, someone's talking about gender and sexuality. Well, sexuality. And diverse gender issues, because, again, we're still using very gendered language. Uh, Johnson's 2015 study compiled statistics for every film released in 2015 and all those nominated for Oscars in 14 or 15. She also drew conclusions about movie profitability when women are represented well. Mm. And here's a really interesting one. Um, The Vito Russo test was created by the LGBT organization GLAAD and tests for the representation of LGBTQ characters and films. It asks the following questions. 
does the film contain a character that is identifiably LGBT? And is not solely or predominantly identified by their sexual orientation or gender identity? Mm-hmm. As well as tied into the plot in such a way that their removal would have a significant effect. So does it also pass the lamp test? Right. Um, which I definitely want to start using the Vita Russo test going forward, especially when we start watch, like uh, covering more queer cult mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, does it pass? It's a great question. Great question. I'm sure you'll tell us in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a few that are about um, characters of color. So another, um, like, much shorter summary of questions that Nadia Latif and Layla Latif of The Guardian suggested in Mm -hmm. 2016, these are only five questions, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm going to read them to you. Okay. So, quote, number one, there are two characters of color. Mm -hmm. Number two, they have dialogue. Again, very basic. We are not asking for much here. Very fair. Number three, they are not romantically involved with each other, which I think is really common when you see like yeah. the only two people of color end up dating each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number four, they do have dialogue that isn't comforting or supporting a white character. Okay. Um, which I think we can come back to in a second. And the last one is that one of them is definitely not a quote-unquote magical negro which is a trope that is common in like the feel-good white movies that Mm -hmm. have a black character in them um where the black character comes in and like fixes things or makes things better Mm -hmm. um without giving any nuance to that character Mm. or maybe is like this is a highly traumatized black person who is coming in and making white people's lives better, which is what that trope kind of means. Gotcha. Does that make sense? It is. Okay. In 2020, Mundair proposed that theatrical and broadcasting performances should recognize people of color, and these are the things that they recommend. That people of color should be, number one, rooted in communities, not just in their own, but how they code switch between belonging in multiple spaces. Number two, how they function in friendships, relationships, and communities that mirror their heritage. Number three, and the intersections of different worlds and experiences reflecting nuanced and lived experiences. Number four, happiness is not dependent on white people. Mm -hmm. Number five, being a fundamental part of the narrative with a functioning world outside of whiteness. Number six, without a focus on race-based tragedy and trauma. Number seven, communities across class in a nuanced way without stereotypes of gang membership, living on housing estates, running corner shops, or being in a high-caste medical professional. Uh, Number eight, with functioning visible or hidden disability without a focus on tragedy and trauma. Number nine, queerness that doesn't focus on tragedy, trauma, or hypersexualization. Mm And number 10, women that don't um, exoticize, fetishize, or involve any other hypersexualization. And in this moment, I can't think of a good film that does not do, or that does not break at least one of these rules. Right. And shows people of color. 
and that's no. sad. No. Mm-mm. Like, the butler breaks some of these rules. Green Book. Um, oh, my God. Let's talk about how the blind side breaks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the rules ah! that we've mentioned in this episode oh, no. so far. Um, I don't think the blind side even passes the Bechdel test. Do they have a daughter? Mother and daughter might have conversation. I have. I haven't seen it in a long time. We'll come back or to have it. Have I ever seen it? The Blind Side with a yeah. uh, oh gosh Sandra Bullock mm-hmm. about Michael Orr. Yeah, who I know. Uh, I know. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay, but I but I don't think I've seen it. Oh well, I'm not a sports. You know, I'm, I grew up with a brother. Yeah, I watched a lot of sports yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah, so, and it, yeah, it's one of those movies where yeah. Yeah. Not it. Yeah. Not for me. So what we know is that the ways that we portray and see people matter. And that's one of the many things about the Bechdel test and all of these subsequent tests that the Bechdel Bechdel test kind of laid the groundwork for um, is it's all about mirrors and windows, which we have talked about before and is the hill that I will die on for this podcast. (laughs) It is not just the number of women or people of color or queer folks or Latinx folks on screen, but the depths of their stories, the range of their concerns, and more importantly, it's not about just portraying a single story or a single stereotype. Which led me, as I was writing my notes, you know I love a good TED Talk, (laughs) and it reminded me of a TED Talk I heard years ago by Chimamanda Adichie, who is a Nigerian author um, and she wrote a, or she, she gave a Ted talk called the danger of a single story. Mm-hmm. And she warns that if we only hear a single story about another person or another country, we risk a critical misunderstanding. And this bleeds into every area of our lives. Adiche states that media and literature available to the public only tell one story, um, which can cause people to generalize and make assumptions about groups of people. So thinking about single stories about immigration, if the only story you've ever heard about immigration is from President 45, who says that they are all Mexican, Mm -hmm. who are sending, quote unquote, sending their worst people. And that's the only thing you ever hear about immigration. It jades your perspective of immigration and people, even refugees, people seeking asylum, People immigrate for all sorts of reasons. Also, uh, we are a country of colonizers and immigrants, and that needs to be understood. Absolutely. The story of Africa. Um, Trevor Noah does a really great bit about the story of Africa, except he shows pictures of like these poor, starving kids, and he's like, where in Africa do you think this is? And it was Detroit. Or right. someplace like that. Uh, I love Trevor Noah. I know. But it doesn't take into account the rich like cultures in Africa or people who are thriving there, the cities. Like that's one of my pet peeves too, is when people refer to Africa as a whole, like people don't say, you know, Europe and like people don't, I don't know. There's no generalization that happens with continents other than that one. Well, a lot of people don't even seem to know that Africa is a continent and not just a country. It drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The story of women. So 
if the only story you ever see or hear in media is about women in relationship to men, then what do you expect from generations of young girls who are being raised with this idea that you are only worth as much as your relationship to men? Mm -hmm. Um, Disabled people, even. Like if you, it goes back to our episode about inspiration porn, still one of my favorites that we've done. Mm -hmm. Because if you are only seeing people with disabilities for ways that they can make you feel better or give you like that magical inspiration, then you're missing out on all the nuances of their lives and all the things that they have to offer. Bechtel and Adichie understand that these things are damaging narratives, not only personally, but within communities, cultures, and even continents. Bechtel has simply given us a test by which to measure the nature of the stories that we hear. Beautiful. Thank you. And I think that's a good, I think we should all be thinking of that. And I think the fact that I have never considered (laughs) it is kind of a yikes situation. Yeah. But you can't say that anymore. No, I can't. Yep. I'm held accountable. Yep. Thank you, you are so, so much welcome. for ruining everything. Anytime. I love you. Anytime. Um, I think the big one for me is like the female characters that talk to each other. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times there is like the female character in each um like they're sub characters in the main character's life, so they're they're partners or they're yeah. mothers, yeah, you know, and and they're supporting the main character, but are they significant enough to speak to each other? Right, that's a great question. Can you replace them with a lamp and the story Can not you lose anything? That's so sad. <laughs> I know, but so real though. It's so real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Especially when we start to think about movies. Like, if we remove the steel magnolias and if we remove fried green tomatoes that have such strong female leads, Mm -hmm. but look at casts that are, like, more gender diverse, I mean, it's really interesting. And I wish that there was a better measure by which to look at people of all genders and not just women. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, the lack of representation of non-binary folks... Um, trans folks, like as anything other than either a supporting character or often like a highly sexualized character mm-hmm. or um, I don't know. I'm just like thinking, I can't even think of a lot of movies that have those representations. Yeah. And this is TV too? Yeah. Or just film? It's all media. All media. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Definitely something we will carry with us through our cult episodes. for sure. bonus episodes moving forward, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well done. Ooh. Ooh. Spirited away. Did it pass? I say yes. She spoke to Yubaba about... And Lynn. And Lynn. Yep. Yep. So it passes. Boom clap. If you haven't listened to the cult episode this month... What are you doing? Go check it out. Go back. It was one episode ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would also like to say that our entire podcast passes the Bechdel test. I don't think there's a single episode where we've talked about us in relationship to men. That's a good point. I love that. To each other, at least. (laughs) I mean, you talk about Ray. Well, we talk about our... Our lives. Yeah. But we're much more nuanced. So we passed the Bechdel test. High five. Proud of us. Cheers to that. I love it. 
Well, very good. Let's take a quick break. Let's do it. And when we come back, we are talking about Lewis Carroll. Oh, this is going to be fun. There's intersections here, I'm telling you. Oh, my gosh. I'm already coming up with three. (laughs) Just wait. I'm going to ruin everything for you. Oh, good. You know how much I love that. Do you like stories, fairy tales, adventure, happy, sad, scary things? Do you like fantasy gaming or just enjoy some good collaborative tale telling? Then do we have the podcast for you. Come travel with us in the lands of Un on Could Have Been Heroes podcast. Could Have Been Heroes is an actual play podcast where six old friends adventure as six total strangers who, after missing their shots at Destiny, now get a second chance to make a mess of everything. Tumble down to Faritol, a world cast in the spirit of Wonderland and Oz, but with more murder, blood, and swears. Set in a unique and developing RPG that filters fantasy, horror, pop culture, and other wonderful nonsense through the brains of a bunch of weirdos making their dream game. You can catch Could Have Been Heroes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So, Alice in Wonderland, will you lead us down the rabbit hole? Absolutely. Welcome aboard. (laughs) All right, you guys. So, we are talking about Lewis Carroll. This one I've been keeping in my pocket for a minute. I'm soups excited. It is fascinating. And I'm going to ruin it so much for you. And I'm so excited. Welcome. I hate this. I know. Why did we start this? Why did we? Did we not want is to terrible. find Men joy are, anymore? Everything is just the worst. Everything, nothing is what you thought. Does Allison in Wonderland pass the Bechtel test? Oh, who does Allison or Allie? Wait, what's her name? Alice talk to. <laughs> she talks to a rabbit, which is identifies as a man. She does talk to the Queen of Hearts, of Hearts, who is a woman, and it's not about a man. So yes, it passes so yes, the Bechtel test. Okay. Very good. So that's one in the pro column. That might be the only one in the pro column. That might be. And and we have, well, we don't have to, but you could choose to separate the literature from the person. As we did with um, the anonymous writer of Harry Potter. (laughs) Correct. So let's dive in. So we know Lewis Carroll as the famous author of the best-selling classic, Alice's Adventure in Wonderland and also through the looking glass. However, Lewis Carroll was not his real name. Oh, starting off strong here. (laughs) It was a pen name. Oh. Yes. And that's not only the thing that we're going to be teaching you and that they didn't teach you in school. Okay, so buckle up. So the man who once believed six impossible things before breakfast. Correct. What is his real name? So Lewis Carroll was born Charles Ludwig Dodson. Okay. Lewis Carroll does sound better. It does. And I'm going to be referring to him as Lewis Carroll throughout this narrative after we do a little background. We're not going to call him Chuck or Charlie or. Nope. Nope. Because those are all men in my family and I would not. (laughs) Okay. Cool. I'm going to pass. Cool, cool. So he was born on January 27th, 1832. Mm -hmm. His style of writing and his wordplay fantasy setting and general nonsense are what makes his style of writing unique. He was a very famous, uniquely stylized author. Super trippy author. Super trippy. 
So his family was predominantly Northern English. They were... We have that in common, in fact. (laughs) They were conservative, and most of his male relatives were members of the Church of England clergy. Ooh. Yes. So his great-grandfather, named Charles, also named Charles, uh, was eventually named the Bishop of Elfin in rural Ireland. And he accomplished this by kind of rising through the ranks of the church. Mm -hmm. Now, his grandfather, also named Charles, had been a captain in the army and was killed in action, leaving his children behind when they were just babies. Oh, poor Chuck. One of those babies. Yeah. Yet another Charles. Is our Charles. (laughs) No, is is not our Charles. Actually, it's our Charles's dad, whose also name is Charles. Lewis Carroll's father. (laughs) We're going to have to come up with some... Inception, right? Yeah. Um, So, Lewis Carroll's father was a brilliant man. um, And they say that's kind of where he gets it from. So, I'll be referring to him, like I said, as Lewis Carroll because there are so many Charleses. Um, He was actually child number four of 12. Ooh. Okay. Middle child syndrome. Yes. Through and through, I bet. There were only two brothers out of the 12. Oh, yikes. And lots and lots of girls. He was the firstborn son. Okay. Ooh, interesting birth order complex. Yes, okay. yes. And he grew up in a very religious environment. And he became a scholar and a teacher at the Christ Church in Oxford, which you will recognize as the dining room setting of Hogwarts. No. <gasps> How cool. Yes. I love that. So he met the dean of the church, which his name was Henry Little, who became kind of his mentor. He was mentoring him. He was like the guy he looked up to. Sure. And Lewis became close with Lorena, who was Henry's wife, along with their children. Also Lorena, Edith, and Alice Little. That name sounds really familiar. It sure does. So we know from Lewis Carroll's diaries from about 1852 to 1863 that the family's friendship was very important to him. Should I have a sinking feeling in my stomach right about now about his relationship with this family and the little girl named Alice? I'm going to leave you on your toes Uh and we will see how this plays out. Uh Uh-oh. I hate when you do that. (laughs) So Alice Little was the clear favorite of the three. And she would have been around four at the time that they would have met. He would have been about 24. It is said that he was in the library when he first spotted her. His office was off the library and he had like a window that overlooked this beautiful garden. Mm -hmm. And her family lived in a building that was across the way that shared the garden as a common space. So it was kind of a natural setting for like children to go kind of like frolic and play in. They became so close that he would often take the children on rowing trips without their parents. It was on one of these trips, July 4th, 1862, that Lewis Carroll came up with the outline for his book, The Adventures of Alice in Wonderland. This day is now called Alice Day, which is celebrated 
It celebrates the first day. It's like a national holiday that they celebrate the first day that the story was ever told. When, what, what day was it? July 4th, 1862. Oh, I'm going to start celebrating that rather than... The other one? Yeah. So now a big part of what we're going to talk about um, is the intentions of Lewis Carroll with his relationship to Alice Little. Mm-hmm. If you know what I'm saying? Kind of what you alluded to earlier? I knew I'd hate it. Yeah. It's important to notice, like, to note, like, going into this, that Lewis Carroll was celibate. He was a member of the church, um, and as a condition of his employment, um, he would remain celibate. Okay? Okay. He also had a speech impediment, which is one of the reasons that he may not have pursued, like, the full priesthood within the church, because giving sermons and public speaking um, as his primary occupation may not have appealed to him. Right. Interestingly, he was a photographer. He took portraits of writers, family members, colleagues. That was something he really enjoyed was like taking photographs. And at the time, it was one of those arts that was like coming up through the ages. Like you, mm-hmm. you literally had to sit for a photograph. Right. And he kind of ran in this very interesting friend group. Like a lot of his friends were like famous painters and like other various artists. So very eclectic. And also, interestingly, he didn't like photographs of himself. Like, he very rarely let people take photographs of him. Hmm. And there was kind of like a sense of privacy and secrecy with him, um, which also kind of goes along with the fact that he did publish under a surname. He didn't want to be recognized in public. Yeah. His interest in Alice began... uh, because, you know, she was like a very young, charismatic girl. She was upper class. I mean, she's four years old. Like, well, she frolics still. She still frolics when they met. That is correct. And he basically, you know, initiates conversation with her to, with the intentions of having her sit for photographs, mm-hmm. right? He kept very detailed diaries. And one of them read in 1856. Quote, the three little girls were in the garden most of the time, and we became excellent friends. We tried to group them in for in the foreground of the picture, but they were not patient sitters. I mark this day with a white stone, end quote. And this is what he does when he like he'll write. I mark this day with a white stone in his diary when he means like today was like a really, really great day. Oh, yeah. I hate that we still have to hate them. <laughs> so they were all spending a very like a very significant amount of time together. And as the years went by, the girls began to get older and eventually they were able to move like to go off the property for, you know, outings, right? So now we're jumping back to that eventful day on July 4th, the day on the river. Fun fact, there is a family-run boating company that you can pay someone to like row you down the river or you can rent boats on your own. And that company still exists today and you can take boat rides. And that's the same company that Lewis Carroll used on that day. Wow. 
So during the boat ride, the story goes that Alice and her other sisters begged him to tell a story. And he eventually reluctantly began just kind of like talking and came out with the framework of what we know as Alice in Wonderland. And as the story continues, it is said that Alice like begged him to write it down. And it took him a year and a half, but he did write the story down and he presented it to her at Christmas that next year. He had handwritten and illustrated it. And it was then called Alice's Adventures Underground. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that sounds much more menacing than in Wonderland. (laughs) So what's interesting is that there are no mistakes in the book. No scratches, no, like, handwriting mistakes, nothing. It was immaculate. No blotches, no nothing. It's literally perfect. That's creepy. Which means that he would have had to have done it over and over and over again to Uh -uh. get it perfect. No. Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, one of the pages shows the drawing of Alice um, as she's bigger, like mm-hmm. as she's a giant, she's she's eaten the stuff. Um, and the white rabbit is kind of like standing there. He's in like an oversized coat and he's looking up at her kind of like a suitor. It's very interesting. I think we can analyze a lot of these photographs, a lot of these drawings. Rather. Right, right. He sees himself as the white rabbit. He's mm. The rabbit is presenting Alice with flowers. She's kind of looking longingly at the rabbit. And maybe many people think that this is like his, um, like the book reflects his generous gift to her, could reflect the rabbit's kind of intentions with Alice. Mm. Kind of creepy considering that the rabbit is courting this young girl and also yeah. possibly he is. So it comes to be that the book is eventually published in 1865. Victorian literature at the time began to bend more towards children. So great expectations came out along the same time. And there were more inclusion in the writing to include like a larger age range. So like books were being written now for, you know, younger people. Yeah. They weren't all all just like impossible storylines about things they couldn't understand. Yeah. So when it came down to publishing... He enlisted a friend to do the artwork. So the books today, even the illustrated ones with like the sketchy drawings are not the one, the same drawings. Those are not the very first original copy of which there are only one. Okay. I wasn't sure if like he had figured out a way to print press or do something so that he could keep the same artwork. So he had done the drawings in the original copy. Right. And then we're getting ready to dive into the published drawings. Right. Okay. So everything in the book was like meticulously chosen. So in fact, like the color of the book itself, like the original print, the the cover of the book was the color red because he believed that that would be more appealing to children. Hmm. Like the red color, which I think is fascinating. So John Tenniel, who illustrated it, was really reluctant to agree to do the drawings, but he did he did end up agreeing. And thank God he did, because that's one of the reasons that the book like sold so well. Yeah. 
Um, and it makes the book like so dynamic. And if you have not seen them, like run, don't walk to get a copy right. from the bookstore. Yeah. They're iconic. Iconic. Absolutely. And what's very unique about this book is that the there aren't just words on one page and like an illustration on another. Um, the words go around the photos, right. which is a really unique formatting, which was not very popular at the time. So this book was like building its success. Sure. Alice in this story was the first female lead in children's literature. Really? Yes. Ooh, Alice and Bechtel would have approved of that. Approved. Maybe the reason why would be a little concerning. <laughs> yeah. But female lead in children's literature, that's important. So the new version of the book had some new stories, such as the tea party, that did not appear in like the OG handwritten oh, okay. creepy version. Um, it also encompassed logic that would be appealing to children and adults. So Alice says something like, but I don't want to go to a place where everyone's mad. And the Cheshire cat says, you all- must also be mad. Right. And she says, how do you know I'm mad? And he says, because otherwise you wouldn't have come. And there's some type of like weird, strange logic. Like if everybody's mad here because you're here, you also are mad. Yeah. You know, and that's like a very like spirally place. Like children are then like going through the the, uh, like abstract thought, abstract thinking. Exactly. So even the, f- the like the feeling of falling down the rabbit hole at the beginning of the the story speaks to people. It's very relatable to children to like experience trauma like and not knowing where it's going to end. Yeah, right. That's a really great point. I hadn't actually thought of it that way um, mm-hmm. as a possible analogy for trauma. Yeah. Because I think about going down the rabbit hole of, like, getting lost in research or getting lost in a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Like, that could certainly work for to explain things to young kids. The whole story gives this feeling of, like, literally being out of control. Yeah. Nothing is what it seems. Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. Yeah, like the butterflies. Were they the same in the book as in the movie? I've read the book, but it's been a long time. Like, they were actually, like, little pieces of bread oh, that yeah. had butter on them and were yeah. flying. Yeah. Um, All thing, of those strange caveats. Yeah. Like, Alice eventually growing so big that mm-hmm. she uh, is sitting the inside house. a house. Mm-hmm. Man. Yep. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And it's a really good exercise. Like, it's a very good, like, Christmas Eve book. If you're, like, on Christmas Eve, you need a little break from your family. You know, get a little snuggle up with a cup of coffee or a cup of hot cocoa and read it. So, Mr. Creepy Creeperson, Lewis Carroll, um, among, like, amongst the preparation for the publication and, and, like, when it first came out, like, he's still taking pictures of Alice. Okay. They're still very much um, friends, whatever that means. So we are kind of backing up just a little bit. Like the book has not technically come out yet. Sure. 
One of the most famous photographs of her, one of the most famous like depictions of her is when she's in the garden. She has a very intense stare and an almost like combative face. And the most controversial part of the photograph is that the dress that she's wearing is off the shoulders and it exposes one of her breasts. So it's important to note that the picture, like a picture like this, uh, was not necessarily uncommon at the time. It wouldn't have been so surprising back then. Um, and we're going to kind of get to why um, the age of consent at the time was 12. Yikes. So things were a little bit different. But, like, today it's startling. You're like, obviously, this guy's a fucking creeper. Like, yeah. Like, he's taken nudie pictures of her yeah. when she's under the age of 12. If he's taking pictures of her, and I think you mentioned earlier that these were, like, long exposure pictures. Mm-hmm. So, she would have had to have stood there. Correct. Like that. Okay. So, that adds another creep factor. Well, and especially knowing that these pictures are being taken, like, at his request. Right. right. Like, he's like, right. will you sit for me? And she's like, you're an adult, so I guess. (laughs) All right, so I need you to put your Nancy Drew cap on. Okay. Okay? I'm ready. So a year after the day on the boat in June 1863, Lewis Carroll was let go from his job at the church and essentially exiled. Okay? Okay. For reasons we do not... Officially know. Officially know. However... From your tone of voice, I am assuming we are about to speculate wildly. So now he, being such a good record keeper, you may think that he would have just jotted it down in his diary. I'm guessing what had happened. Did not? Well, pages are missing from his diary during that time period, as if to hide something. His nieces, after he died, inherited his journals inherited his diaries and their those pages are literally razored out with a razor blade wow yes yes there are months that go by without any mention of the children and the first mention of them after the exile is december 5 remember we're going from july to december right okay quote miss little and the children were there but i held aloof from them as I have all this time, end quote. I wish that that took more of my investigative skills than it actually <laughs> so does. So he was, he was avoiding them. Yeah. So what we now know is that despite all of this, he still completed the book and gave it to her that Christmas. Sir, stop being creepy. So despite them being estranged from each other, he still wrote it meticulously. He would have had to have been working on it the entire time, right? So obviously, like our first thought about this journal entry was that he's creepy uh, and he's trying to get with Alice. But there's also another perspective, There was a piece of paper written by his niece that inherited the books that cut out the pages. And it says, quote, Elsie learns from Mrs. Little 
that he's supposed to be using the children as a means of pay court to the governess. He also supposed he's also supposed to be courting Ina, end quote, which is Alice's older sister. Oh. So this suggests that it wasn't Alice, but his relationship with the governess and his support and his supposed like future relationship with Ina that could have been the reason that they were no longer. That makes me feel a smidge better, but not Mm -hmm. by much. Right. Not going to lie. But there's another document written by Ina to Alice when they were in their 80s. This is a letter. I know. This is a letter from Ina to Alice. And it read, quote, dear... I cannot believe I wrote this in my notes. This is so stupid. Quote, dear sir, I hope this letter finds you in good health. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh. that's, that was a, that was a joke. That was a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So just for some background, this was in reference, the actual quote is when she's in reference, what she's referencing is where, Ina had just been interviewed by a biographer in relation to what had happened to their family relationship with Carol. And she's worried about the explanation that she gave to mm-hmm. the that agency. She said, quote, I said his manner became too affectionate to you as you grew older and mother spoke to him about it and that offended him. So he ceased coming to visit us again, end quote. So you can read this in two ways. You can read it as, quote, I said his manner became too affectionate to you as you grew older, meaning he was a creeper. Or I said his manner became too affectionate to you as you grew older, saying it wasn't Ina, it was you. Okay. So, like, basically insinuating that he was after, like, he was insinuating that he was with Ina, but maybe said that he was, like, maybe she had said that to, like, throw off the scent or something like that. And again, the age of consent was 12, so it would have been that Ina's relationship would have been more appropriate since Alice would have been underage. Right. As a 12-year-old. So Carol was eventually welcomed back to the church, and he did began working there again, but the relationship was never the same. And also what's interesting is that Alice named one of her children, Carol, years later. Is that not strange? Very strange. Yeah. So after Alice and her family were no longer in Lewis Carroll's life, and like his fame was kind of growing, it began to climb. And like, although he didn't like take photographs, people didn't necessarily know who he was. He was still like a very wealthy person. Right. He did collect kind of a large group of friends that happened to be children. Ew. Do you know what I'm saying? So he would pick them up on trains. He would like even like family friends like children of friends he was just kind of surrounded by fr- like a michael jackson situation that's exactly what i was yeah, thinking yeah and of course um some 
if not most of these children were photographed, okay? Some of which were photographed naked, okay? After hundreds of years, a naked photograph was discovered of what was supposed to be Lorena Little or Ina who wrote that letter Mm -hmm. and she is fully nude. So this photograph ends up coming out years and years later, but they weren't sure if the photograph was authentic. Okay. Okay. If this photograph is authentic, it would very much prove the fact that he is an absolute creeper. Right. Yeah. So we're looking for, is it actually Ina? And did Lewis Carroll actually take the photograph? So it was taken using a negative process that Carroll would have used at the time. It also uses paper. It was printed on paper that was would have been used at the time. And although we can't know for certain, it was determined not to be a fraud. Okay. So he definitely took the photograph. Mm. So he's definitely a creeper. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I felt it in my bones a long time ago. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Charles Dodson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, died of pneumonia after having influenza on January 14th, 1898. Only four days after he died, Henry Little... His mentor also passed away. Ooh. Charles Dodson is buried at the Mount Cemetery in Guilford. And that is the story of Lewis Carroll. Fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. I know. He was a total creeper pedophile. Soups dupes. Oh, I hate that. I know. What's interesting is Alice grows up like and she's kind of like this famous figure and none of them ever speak out about this like necessarily the 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 information we're pulling from is from like a a letter that's literally written between two sisters. Right. Um, I think it's very fascinating thinking that he was kind of promised to Alice's older sister and Possibly the fact that their relationship between the family was spoiled because he was paying too close attention to her younger sister. Yeah. Um, there, between historians, there's a lot of argument whether he was or wasn't a pedophile. To me, it's a no-brainer. I don't think you, you can excuse um, the time period. Yeah. Um, I, I personally don't think you can. Yeah. No, if she was four and he was 24 when they met, Mm -hmm. it only gets worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hated that. Thank you. (laughs) You're so welcome. So I think intersections is that, um, and interestingly, I spun my story to, well, okay. So we we have Ina and Alice speaking to each other in the letter. Yes. About a man, though. However, in Alice in Wonderland, we've already determined that passed the Bechdel test. Correct. Um, and we don't have enough firsthand information for you to have any more correspondence between Ina and Alice. Correct. So I don't know that that's totally on you. Well, thank um, you. 
But, I mean, Lewis Carroll did write the first children's book with a female protagonist mm-hmm. lead. Like, that's really cool. Right. Um, and if we divorce the uh, author from the work, mm-hmm. like, that's profound. Mm-hmm. Having a young female protagonist um, in the 1860s. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think in some ways it at least gave women or young girls like a character that they could. Representation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as far as your story goes, I hated it. (laughs) And, uh, I don't know that there's a strong, like as a writer, Mm -hmm. as a male, cis male writer, Mm -hmm. He didn't do the worst job. As a human, I don't like him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So if if we, like you said, separate the person from the, the work, um, I think, yeah, Allison in Wonderland is a huge part of history in and of itself. Yeah. Um, I think it really speaks to children. And I think it's interesting, like the psychology behind him and how he was mm-hmm. so able to relate to children. Yeah. Which is unique. Yeah. Um, and understand, like, the being an adult, but also being able to relate to how those things felt and being able to relay that so clearly yeah. in his writing. Yeah. I would love to know more about the Little Sisters, mm-hmm. um, just so that we could have, like, a more, <clears throat> a more like, well-rounded understanding of, like, who they are. Mm-hmm. Again, this was the 1860s, like... We just may not have that information. I'm also curious about his, like, own mental health and, um, like, clearly there are some unhealthy behaviors. Uh, where does that stem from? Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of some general general questions. Yeah. But when looking, again, at the work itself, I think it's not bad. In fact, it's really good. I loved Alice in Wonderland. I know. It is really good. It's really good. It is really good. It's my namesake, and it's really good. (laughs) Yeah. So I did not think that my research was going to lead me down this way when I started it all those months ago, but when I discovered that part, that dark history part, it's just one of those things you got to share. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you did. Um, I think it's always better to know than to not know. Absolutely. Knowledge is power. Yeah. If we're going to consume media, we need to know, you know, about the people who wrote it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you did an amazing job this week. You're one hell of a storyteller. Oh, thank you. You too, boo-boo. Thank you, boo. I will be literally thinking about that every time I consume a piece of media. You are so welcome. Five sure. Yeah. Five sure. Well, thank you guys so much for listening this week. And I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving last week. Uh, Just as a quick reminder, we are asking for questions on our Instagram. Go look at stories um, and you will see a little place where it says, ask us a question, ask us anything. Um, We love hearing from you guys and we have a special episode coming out soon. We are going to be recording that this week. So if you hear this on the day it comes out, Get your questions in because we are doing like a little special episode to release later in December. Just as a little change of pacey poo. Yeah. 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 But we 
I uh, hope your first week of December is going well. Oh my god, it's December. How is this year almost over? I don't really know. It's unclear. Uh, unclear. But if you have not done al- done so already, please go to Apple uh, podcast and leave us a five star review. Mm-hmm. We love to get them, and we will probably read them on air because that's just so much fun for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, you will also get stickers, maybe a magnet. Oh yeah! If you have a special request for a pen rather than a sticker, let us know. No one does. <laughs> um, also, you can find us on Patreon at Podcast Without an Audience and get this super secret pasta recipe, which will be excellent going into these colder months. Oh, absolutely. So good for the chill. The bone have chill. I, have I already made it once this year? Or this season? Absolutely, I have. Absolutely. This week? Yeah. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, for me. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.